House period. What happened was uh, there was this club called the Warehouse where Frankie Knuckles was the DJ. All the gay people went there. The club only held like about 300 people. I never went there, right? But it, apparently it was like really exciting, right? Now, what happened was the warehouse had to close down. And uh, what happened is the, they split. Frankie Knuckles went and started another club called the Power Plant. And the owners of the warehouse started another club called the Music Box. And this is when everything got exciting. I went to the Music Box. You know, I didn't even like dance music before I went. I just went because there was this beautiful girl that used to go there, and I followed her there. She took me there one time. And uh, I really liked it because it, the volume was, like, really kicking Boom, boom. Matter of fact, I, I haven't heard volume like that since. In any club in the entire world, I never heard music at that, that level and stuff. So I started liking dance music after I went there. It was mostly disco and all that stuff, right? Nobody was thinking about making house music. So what happened, this guy Jesse Saunders made a house record. He was another DJ, and he made a house record. He made the first house record. And after he done that, everybody thought... Oh, I could do, I can make music too. And that, as a matter of fact, that happened to me. I thought I could make music after Jesse Saunders started making it, right? So one one time I went to a music store with my friend, and uh, there was this guy there. He said, "This is a this is a music computer, and with this music computer, you can play keyboards like a real keyboard player." You know, my friend he was a guitarist and stuff. He said, "That's bull." You know, nobody can. You got to take lessons. You got years and years. You got to learn how to play. You got to right and so i was listening to the guy right and i believed him right so i said oh i'll buy it right and the guy said what the hell are you doing you know and i and i said i said no i believe him i think i could play keyboards with this thing right so the sales guy told me say yeah you don't want to get this music computer and not have a keyboard to play do you i said oh yeah you're right so i bought the keyboard too so I said, oh, okay, I'll buy a keyboard too, right? And he said, you don't want to have this music computer and this keyboard and not have a drum machine to play, do you? I said, oh, yeah, you're right. So I got a drum machine too, right? He said, you don't want to have this music computer and this keyboard and this drum machine and not have something to play it all through, do you? I said, yeah, you're right. So I bought a mixer. He said, you don't want to have this music computer and this drum machine and this keyboard and this mixer not have something to record it all on, do you? I said, yeah, you're right, right? So I bought all this stuff, wound up about 9000 right? All my friends were like, they really took it out of me that night. And I stupidly bought all this stuff and don't even know how to play nothing. He's stupid, he's stupid, right? But I wrote my first song two days later, right? And one year later, DJs all over the world were hiring keyboard players to play keyboards like Marshall Jefferson. So... <laughs> So, so it worked. But it all happened. Because I, I believed I could play because that music computer, I thought that was what Jesse Saunders used, right? But the point is, when Jesse made house music, all of us thought that we could make music. What happened, right? In 1986, I did this song called Move Your Body. I gotta have house music, right? And 
and it named the music for everybody, right? Then the reporters started coming out, house music, house music, house music, right? The music box was hidden away at the bottom of a car park in downtown Chicago. Ten years later, a version of that adventure, experiment and chaos exists in every town all over Ireland. In bedrooms, in carpeted discos, student residences, or in renovated restaurants, pubs, wine cellars, hotels. Ten years later, DJ Francois is in an empty nightclub in Dublin, sorting through the tracks he will play, waiting for the night to begin. Um, it's quite empty at the moment. What we have is a large dance floor, a sound system, lighting system, and a moat for some reason floating around the uh, dance floor. And right in front of us we have the DJ box, or the altar as I sometimes like to call it, because uh, dance parties are very tribal and religious almost, and you're on elevated position and you're like the, the high priest conducting a mass. Uh, some would say black mass and the devil's music, but uh, that's the way it is. Well, so now we're standing in the actual DJ box, a couple of feet above the dance floor we're looking out. In front of me, there's the two turntables, which are the basic tools of the DJ. You use that to play your records on. And then between the two turntables, there's the mixing desk, so you can bring in two different records together at the same time, create a third sound, a third texture. You also have various gadgets, like you can cut out the bass or the treble or the top. You've got various uh, effects on it, like delay and things like that. Beside me, there's the lighting desk where the lighting man sits and uh, he controls all the effects, like a strobe light and the different colours and stuff like that going on the dance floor. It's a bit like a book without any uh, sentences in it. You're just waiting for the script to be read later on in the evening. It serves no other function except for dancing and having a good time. It's very bare and drab and boring, really. But as I say, as the night gets on, dance floor starts getting crowded. There's smoke, lights, atmosphere, people cheering and shouting. It's a completely different thing. When I went to college in 1990, most of what people were into in terms of music and going out and how people define themselves was most kids were indicates, you know. Bands like the Stone Rose and Happy Mondays were very big at the time. Happy Mondays are interesting because they had elements of guitar music and they had elements of dance music. So they were a nice little crossover and they were an easy introduction into other bands at the time from Manchester, which was really a thriving music city like 808 State, and 808 State came and played a gig in Limerick in the Jetland. I was in college in UL. The Jetland held uh, 3,000 people, and 808 State played to me and five of my mates, and that's what it seemed like, but there was was about 120 or 130 people there, and it was phenomenal. Just the feeling of it. there, There was no... The strongest thing we'd had was maybe a couple of glasses of cider. We were all about 17 or 18 years of age. And it really was fantastic. And it opened a whole dimension of music and dance. The gig itself would have been considered a disaster, especially by the people who organised it. But for us, it was fantastic. And we met them afterwards and we talked to them and they seemed like very nice people. They wore some very good clothes. And they seemed like they really were into what they were doing and they told us to get into it as well. From there... Anything that we found out about that involved getting up and dancing as opposed to sitting around and moaning, we went to it and got into it. (laughs) 
1976, you had the release of Saturday Night Fever, which was the big disco thing. Disco was a huge, huge dance explosion in the 70s in the States. And you had a lot of uh, various disco DJs, guys like Larry Levin playing in the Paradise Factory, which were mainly black, gay or Hispanic clubs. And they started the idea of mixing records together and bringing in technology onto the dance floor, for example. Um, Larry Levin started mixing in the breaks between certain records and he found out that people liked them and then he'd bring along what we call a drum machine. That's a, it's a machine for making synthetic drum sounds and he'd hook that up into the sound system and he'd provide an extra beat in the background to kind of pump up the sound of the disco records. Um, there was a series of DJs readers, Kevin Saunderson, Larry Levin, um, DJ Pierre, people like that, based around Chicago, Detroit and New York, who um, were influenced also by the electronic sound coming out of Germany. I mean, it's, it's quite a leap of faith, if you think. You have these guys mixing in uh, pure disco music with something like Kraftwerk, which is very alien. And, I mean, I suppose it'd be like um, Irish musicians suddenly mixing in Aboriginal music. I mean, that's how different it was. And this uh, sound excited everybody, so people started using electronics far more and more in the actual music itself. And then with the advent of electronic equipment like the 303, the 808 and the 909, their various electronic machines, and people started experimenting and mixing and using loops of drums and guitar sounds and vocals and so on. Marshall Jefferson was one of the very first to use all these ideas of mixing technology and vinyl on the dance floor. Um, as you can hear the music, it starts with a simple loop of a voice going, move your body, rock your body, move your body, rock your body. Then you have a keyboard sound coming in. Then you have the drum machine, the click, click, click of a drum machine. And he started using that years and years ago. He's playing it over records in the discotheque, and then he just started inventing his own tracks like this. As you can see, they're very simple bass, very disco. Um, that's what he was essentially a disco DJ. This is Kraftwerk. This is the track Trans Europe Express that really changed uh, a lot of the, the whole disco dancing scene. Um, a lot of the DJs like Marshall Jefferson and Larry Levin were playing this in the middle of their sets and they were getting an amazing reaction to it. And it, As you can see, it's very electronic, it's very cold. Um, it doesn't really have much of a funky disco feel to it, so they decided why not take this sort of music ourselves, make it more exciting, more disco-y, more funky. Essentially, it was a synthesis of the, the, the electronic German electronic sound and the funky disco element in America. Um, as I said, it was, it was a huge leap of faith to actually try and combine the two, but it's, it's had a, a huge influence on music ever since. Ditches are okay on this deck, but on the left-hand deck, they can sometimes act up. Ibiza was originally part of the hippie trail in the 60s, so you always had a very much uh, laid-back, casual attitude on the island. Um, I mean, there was clubs going there, like Amnesia, I think it was, from the early 70s, and your DJs like Alfredo would play a wide range of music. Um, was, people were much more open because the whole laid-back 60s hippie thing, so they were more willing to experiment with sounds and ideas with music. 
But um, you also had a lot of unemployed youths coming over because you had cheap flights and stuff like that. So you had a lot of uh, guys coming over from London, Manchester, Nottingham, places like that. They were unemployed, didn't have much money. So they'd just spent four or five months lounging around on uh, beaches listening to this sort of music. Petty thieving and drug dealing and stuff like that for a living. So you had people like the Ramplings, uh, Paul Oakenfold, all holidaying and partying in Ibiza. And instead of going back to dreary old uh, London and Manchester in midwinter, they wanted to recreate this whole atmosphere that they discovered out there with the whole ecstasy scene and the friendliness and the warmth and hugs and all that sort of stuff that went along with it. When they originally went back to London, a lot of the clubs, I mean, there's very few clubs which were actually state-of-the-art. They would have been beer-swilling halls, um, slow sets, people just getting drunk. They weren't really there for the music or anything like that. So these guys said, Grant, where can we find a venue that we can put on, something like that? And they discovered Heaven in uh, London, which is really was about the only purpose-built club at the time. And that was on a Monday night, and we got queues of thousands of people trying to get into this club on a Monday night, which really quite, quite surprised a lot of people, but it said something about the whole scene, the way it was suddenly developing. It wasn't like you know, I'd seen the light, but you knew that from now on everything else would seem a little bit tame. Um, before things become mainstream, and before society adopts things like we've seen over the last couple of years, there's always the sense of being the one step ahead of the crowd. Everybody likes that. We were very much at the cusp of a huge change. Before that, we didn't really have that. It was U2 records and crying at the Smiths albums or something, I don't know. There wasn't an awful lot, I know that much there was pubs and chart music. So when this culture originated, it was timely. With retrospect, it's always e easy to say that, but it was timely. People were looking for something else. People were looking for a, a change. And that's what happened, certainly what happened. I remember trying to run an event when I was in UCD called Asset Swamp in the Mansion House. It was run in conjunction with Trinity. Only a couple of hundred people turned up and there was some guy with a load of dodgy uh, rave early Balearic house records and stuff like that. But, I mean, you had the atmosphere there and people were suddenly realising that we're on the cusp of something that was about to happen, something very large was about to happen. I think part of the reason why the, the Irish scene didn't develop so quickly was scarcity, really, of ecstasy because th that was a lot of the main attraction, to be quite frank about it, in the English clubs. And people went there to hear the music and to take ecstasy, but it wasn't very common over here at all at the time. And it was, it was quite expensive as well, so people um, really couldn't afford to go out every weekend or on a Monday night and join themselves like they could in London. It was about a year after the whole thing started happening in London, it started to happen in Ireland. We had a lot of people studying or working over in London or Manchester and so on, and they were hearing all this new type of music. So they were coming back to Ireland and they were wondering, I like, like this music, but there's no places that play it. And then you have bands like The Shaman and 808 State coming over here, small promoters putting them on and playing this weird new form of music, which a lot of people really got into then at that time. And a few of the uh, smaller promoters and clubs started putting on club nights in places like Sides Nightclub, which is no longer there anymore. It's now turned into a pub on Georgia Street. 
Down also in Sir Henry's in Cork was one of the very first places in Ireland to play this sort of music. Sir Henry's was going a long time by the time we got there and was considered one of the best clubs in Europe. For a time between 89 and 1991, we went there the summer in 1991. It was crowded, first of all, it was absolutely crowded. And unless you were at a concert, like a, a formal concert prior to that, you wouldn't have had that kind of a crowd in a nightclub or in a disco. It just felt good. There was a vibe there. Even though we were in a strange town, we were with a group of friends, but everybody else was virtually a stranger to us. Everybody was there to have a good time. Cork is no more than anywhere else, probably a dangerous place to wander around at night, but there was never any feeling of that you'd lost your security or that you were in any way in any danger. A lot of London and Manchester DJs came over to Sir Henry's and it was the best thing to do on a Saturday night in Ireland. It really had an awful lot to do with drugs at the time, I suppose, but people were happy to do take an E or whatever and get down and dance and move around the place and move around the club and talk to people. And it was very controlled and was very centred. I didn't see any excess, certainly. I didn't see any casualties. I didn't see anybody being ill or being upset. Not that I can remember. first took ecstasy in 1989. I wasn't expecting very much anything. I was a bit cynical about this whole paper thing, hyping it up out of all proportion. But after, after about half an hour, I started to feel this, this nice warm glow developing over my body and everything was becoming slightly fuzzy around the edges. Colours seemed slightly brighter, seemed slightly nicer. And then about really an hour into it, I was fully into the full ecstasy experience. I was feeling little tingles up and down my back and spine. And if, if you talk to somebody, they were the most interesting person in the world and... You were trying to tell them everything about yourself because you loved them and they loved you. And it's very tactile. The reason why it was called the hug drug is if you're touching somebody or something, all those emotions are heightened and the senses are heightened. And also, if you want to stay out dancing, you're going to need something to keep you awake. And also the fun of it, the whole fun element, the lovely, touchy-feely element of it. Just natural for people who are curious to actually take this. There wasn't that many people using it initially in the first couple of years, but from 1991 onwards, the whole thing really mushroomed. Just what is it that you want to do? Well, we want to be free. We want to be free to, to do what we want to do. And we want to get loaded. And we want to have a good time. And that's what we're going to do. Well, wait, baby, let's go. We're going to have a good time. We're going to have a party. many, Primal Scream and The Happy Mondays were the perfect blend of house and indie music and a smooth introduction to pure dance. The loaded sample, borrowed from a 60s biker movie, was, in a way, to preempt the zeitgeist of a whole decade. We want to be free to do what we want to do, and we want to get loaded and have a good time. The drug ecstasy, for better or for worse, was part of that revolution in the head. He seduced and hijacked an entire youth culture. 
In the early days, rumours spread of the lovey-touchy element in every club. Before there was death, there was innocence. People fell in love overnight. Fun was cartoonish. Girls didn't dance around handbags. Instead, male and female blew whistles, waved teddies in the air, wore smiley t-shirts and glitter makeup. The media headlines at the time added to the attraction. The more outlandish the stories of raves and the effects of E, the more people became curious. It was the naughtiest youth culture for years. And well, everyone enjoys laughing, especially if you're in on the joke. This track you're going to hear now is called Everything Starts With An E by the Easy Posse. And um, it really speaks for itself. It's, it's on a now 17 compilation besides the likes of Tina Turner and Erasure. And it's completely cheeky reference to drugs. A lot of it was also two fingers to the establishment. I mean, the BBC wanting to ban those records and uh, people in an uproar over it. Well, it's awful, but if you can make out the lyrics, it's full of reference to coming on strong. I mean, it's a strong pill that you're coming up on and stuff like that, and getting on one, which was just another reference to taking drugs as well. I think the project used that out just for the sheer cheek of it because people were going out to all night orbital raves and parties, dancing till dawn. So it was a big joke, really. Obviously, because mothers didn't know where their kids were going out. A few years ago, I was really into Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Jimi Hendrix. It was a gradual progression from grunge to house or rave, whatever. It wasn't something that I decided overnight. Um, the peer group of my time were into Pearl Jam and all that, and I liked them too. But no, grunge seems really dated, but I think it suits teenagers of about 13 or 14 because, you know, hormones and puberty and all that, they're, they're getting depressed and they don't know how they feel about things so that music suits them but rave now that you're more content and fulfilled in yourself you're coming of age and you know the score and grunge music doesn't appeal that much anymore you like music with a livelier beat House is split in a hundred different ways a thousand different styles a million different sounds after ten years it cradles both ends of a youth generation in its arms Late 20-somethings still not ready for dinner parties and teenagers who were just toddlers when Marshall Jefferson produced his first track. One of the fascinating aspects of house and club culture is how long it has lasted. Paradoxically, perhaps because it's constantly changing, fueled by an internal dynamic, self-belief, occasional boredom and sometimes enforcement. 
the introduction of new legislation and stricter Garda control led to a crackdown on outdoor parties, events, raves. No more fela, no more dancing in a huge marquee, no more weekend parties on the burren. The tragedy and excess associated with the flip side of the love drug sobered many, and the growth of super clubs like the kitchen and the pod enticed people indoors. But while house and rave were undergoing a facelift, and while the jilted generation were changing their clothes, there was a whole new audience listening quietly out there. Little brothers and sisters were growing up, some falling for the same seducer. Some things are timeless. It was my 19th birthday and my cousin said she had a surprise for me and I went in to meet her in town and she had two reps of speed and two E's, one E for her, one E for me, one rep of speed for her, one rep of speed for me. So on the Friday night she took the rep of speed and so did she. And the next night I wasn't sure about taking E. Even as close as August and September, I had a fear of E. I always considered it a really dangerous drug and I said I wouldn't go near that. In school, they taught us that it bloated your organs and you got hydrated, so you had to drink water. And if you drank too much water, it could have a serious effect on you also. So it sounded really dangerous. So the first time I tried it, I wasn't worried because I was after a lot of drink at the time. So I didn't even have a chance to think about what I was taking. And I got very emotional when I took it, but it had no major physical side effects, so I thought there's not as much harm in it as was taught us in school or told to me by other people. And the first time I took it, I was at home, but the second time I took it, I was in college. I knew there'd be a lot of people around me who were recent friends of mine, and I knew I could trust them because there was a lot of people taking it. Uh, I remember being terrified the first time it was handed to me and thinking, right, I'm going to take this, have a massive heart attack and fall dead. But that didn't happen. So you get over that straight away. And that was in an alley in a street in Cork before we went into a nightclub. Again, there was a sense of danger. That's always important. If you're doing something that you know to be wrong and dangerous, then you're going to do it straight away, immediately. I like it in a small group, but I also love going out clubbing. If you have a good big group, because everyone really cares about each other, go and get in water. If anyone looks anyway agitated, you're looking out for them and just making sure that they feel all right and they're not getting paranoid, because some people can get paranoid on E and they're not sure what to think because they expect to feel good and they're having ups and downs and they don't understand what's going on. If you get a mixture in your E, you can get paranoid because one night I was dancing in a group and this girl kept hitting off me and I actually got really paranoid and I was wondering why she kept hitting off me and I was getting upset over it but part of the thrill of taking E is definitely the fact that you don't know what it contains it might sound really stupid to older people or whatever but it's a risk, you don't know what's going to come next and that's what life is all about, you never know what's around the corner 
without being stupid about it, I wouldn't go out and take six or seven E's because I know that I would just be stupid. I would make myself sick, but I really enjoy one or two at the most and just dancing and talking to people and having a really good time and just feeling really, really happy. Narcotics and drugs in general are the most boring thing to talk about. They're not subjects for endless conversations about how many you've taken, how long you were going for, how many clubs you went to, how long you stayed up, how long you slept afterwards. All of that is, is deathly tedium. And there was a time when that was the topic of conversation amongst me and my friends. And that was very boring, and very boring at the time. Once you take E, you're waiting for, at the most, an hour to come up. So for about half an hour, you're just excited about the prospect of coming up because coming up is a major part of E. So when I came up, I just got rapid rushes and it's just like rapid shivers through your muscles and when you stretch out, you just feel the shivers right through you. It's something that you couldn't get on a natural buzz. You just feel love for everyone around you, you know. It breaks on the barriers of conversation and at the same time, you know who you are, you know what you're thinking. It's not like drink where you're not completely in your own mind. You know what you're thinking, you just feel a lot more at ease at what you're saying to people. And when I'm on E, I start to think a lot about friends and family and how much they mean to me. One night, I was talking to a friend of mine about family and I began to realise how much my mother meant to me and I'd taken a lot of the things for granted, but I realised that she's She'd done so much for me and I just came to a sudden realisation of how much I appreciated her and how good she was to us. I think for a lot of people who take drugs, it is perhaps difficult for them to differentiate between the effect of the drug or to remember even that they've taken drugs in the first place. Whereas for me, I was always pretty certain that whatever I was feeling was a direct result of having taken a tablet not some profound event that was actually taking place. Basically, your body was reacting to what you'd put into it, and this was an effect. An excellent effect, but an effect nonetheless. You know? There's always going to be an after-effect. For me, personally, I couldn't deal with the after-effects of having taken E. I couldn't deal with it. I felt very listless and very tired, pretty depressed, upset about simple things. It only took two or three occasions for me to recognise this, and then it became more important. I knew how to solve the problem, which was not to take the drug in the first place. Yeah, it's a tired cliche again, but you don't need drugs to have a good time. You really don't. And now, five, six years later, you can really understand what that means. You don't need to... Some people still hang on to it and say, yes, I do need this. But maybe that's a, something else that's missing in their lives. But for the majority of people, you can replace ecstasy with absolute and you're still going to have just as good a time. How many cigarettes? Four. Who's the four? Just your Yeah, okay, go ahead, guys. The balls that you get off E, you could never get naturally. It's something that you could never describe unless you took it. It's just the ultimate in feeling good. Your whole body feels so good. You feel beautiful. If you look in the mirror, you just think you are so beautiful. And everyone else, there's something so appealing about them. Nobody has a bad trait. Everyone is appealing, you're willing to accept everyone at face value. And club music and E go hand in hand. E would still be around, I'd say, without club music, but not to the same extent. 
it's really been exalted by the fact that it goes hand in hand with club music and one complements the other. Um, when I'm in a club and there's a good DJ playing, they play songs with slow come-ups, gradually getting faster and faster, and this helps your rushes that go through your body, which are like rapid shivers just belting away inside you. And as the music gets faster, the rushes increase, and when you reach the climax, it's like a complete outbreak. It's the ultimate in the E, and you just feel so good. It's like all your energy in your body is just pulling together and just pushing straight to you, and you just feel so good. A chicken and egg thing would people have danced without the drug or do people dance because of the drug I don't know the answer in analyzing it then you have to take a step back and it's a very passive process in trying to say was this a cause of this or is there a causal link at all I would say that there isn't everything happened at once and it's up to us to make sense of it The difference between myself and an 18-year-old is that I find 10 years ago the whole club scene was new. We all wore silly flares and stupid hats and smiley-faced badges and all this sort of stuff. But as you get older, you, you tend not to bother with the drugs anymore because you're just getting too old for it, basically. And unlike all things, you, you grow out of your youthful rebellion and you get a bit tired of it. You can't stay up all night. You like to go out and have a few drinks and appreciate the music for what it is. Whereas somebody who's just coming into the scene now they have had this whole soundtrack, really, for the last ten years. I mean, you hear dance music everywhere. Like, look at the current Guinness ad, it's DJ Shadow. Every clothes shop you walk into is dance music. Even the, the venerable institutions like the banks are using advertising, like, done raving. The picture that you've seen is presented in a billboard of a man and a woman who have just been married. And with the house name in generic house name style, like your mum and dad have, with Don Raven written on it. And Don Raven is an old gag. The message is, are you Don Raven? Have you given up on all this and now want to settle down with the chosen person that you've decided to be with for the rest of your life? I'm 25, so it's definitely directed at me and my peers between 25 and 28. And it's very canny marketing on behalf of the bank that produced it. I think it's interesting as well that there are clubs, especially in London, if you take a, a club like Heaven in London, which was always traditionally a gay club, they're going to change it into a coffee bar where people can sit around and have drinks. More of a social aspect. Because Branson, being a clever businessman, has realised that his market are no, really, no longer really interested in getting out of their heads and dancing all night and are more interested in sitting around and talking. We've seen that as well in Dublin. Dance floors are not always packed. People do like to sit around and talk and, and get together. Clubs have become far more clubby than just places to go and get off your head. There'll always be a difference between the way it was and the way it is now. The whole scene itself is constantly evolving. I think that's due to the, uh, the globalisation of the musical scene for a start. I mean, people can 
you can order records over the uh, net now and you can hear new ideas or you can hear snippets of music over the internet or you can buy records imported from Japan and these Japanese guys are taking on board Detroit ideas and make, making them their own. Um, it's, it's raw urban music, but at, at the end of the day, it's still minimalistic, sparse. I mean, the music is constantly evolving because people want to change. There's no point being stuck in the same rut, playing the same sort of music year in, year out, because it gets boring. People get bored with it. I mean, Marshall Jefferson, he's playing stuff now, which is all new and all that sort of stuff. He wouldn't be still... He'd play a couple of his other tracks, of course. But, I mean, he wouldn't be stuck in the past from 10 years ago because the music has developed and it does keep changing all the time. And the technology is changing as well. So, I mean, kids can go out now and buy a sampler, a drum machine for under £1,000, whereas five years ago it cost you a few thousand pounds. And also kids can go out and buy a set of uh, turntables and make music themselves. Club culture has been like an influence, right? But like I wouldn't be aiming completely towards like playing for a dancing audience or whatever. But like club culture definitely, you know, that's where you kind of like during summer I saw a load of live acts in London and like just how easy it can be done, like just with a PC and a sampler and mixing this and all that and it looked brilliant, like you know, the lads having a great laugh, like messing around and everyone going mad. First thing like that I have is a PC. I bought that there last year, so what I'm planning on for next is a sampler. And then after that, a mixing desk, and then a tap machine, and then an effects unit, and all the rest. I started off like with a guitar and an amp and all that. That's where you kind of get into music, you know. Like a lot of people at the moment, I suppose, are buying decks and things like that. So I'm still really using instruments, but putting it through like samplers and things like that. And you can get some really good sounds out of them. All right, one, one of the tracks I'm after doing is called Sniperior. Just started off, I took two samples off um, Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Gene Wilder, like, and his voice is brilliant. And uh, what else? I nicked a couple of breaks off an album and just layered them and chopped them up and sequenced them. So they went that way and put a string sound over it and just a load of filters and everything. And it's, yeah, it's fairly good, right? It's rocking. Willy Wonka sampled in a makeshift studio in a Dublin flat. Marshall Jefferson buying his machines on hire purchase in a Chicago sales room. In this room, all dreams become realities and some realities become dreams. And the club is over. Francois is putting away his vinyl, packing up his decks. Money is being counted and the floor swept. The space looks bare and empty again and the worse for wear after hundreds of clubbers are finished there dancing. But the night isn't over yet. All over the city and echoed in the small towns of Ireland, parties are just beginning. In houses and apartments, among students and workers. Decks will be set up, or CDs played on a stereo. Some people will take ecstasy, others will have a drink or a smoke. The impact of house has spread far beyond its original terrain. It has changed the nightscape of Ireland. It has changed the way young men and women socialize with each other. It has changed the way youth culture sees itself. Five years of punk is easier to understand. 
anti-establishment, marginalised. But House is both reviled and embraced by the establishment, both underground and completely mainstream. In a decade, it has accelerated and mutated with exactly the speed and intensity you'd expect of music in the digital age. It wasn't just House, but Chicago House, Balearic, Garage, Trance, Ambient, Techno, Jungle. Changing and splitting sounds, reflecting the thousand different stories and adventures that have happened in Clubland. And it isn't just music, it's fashion, art, the internet, advertising, the very tempo of living. It has normalised some drugs for many people, signifying a temporary web of loved-up humanity, as well as the come-down of being alone and edgy, shivering in the cold after too many pills. People know both sides of the coin now, and as it spits again and jumps forward and back, accelerating and spreading out tentacles into many corners of Irish life, we see now that there is a history, that it has more than one story, and that, like rock and roll, it's not going to go away. I've always been very happy in clubs because there's a lot to see and a lot to do, quite apart from dancing and taking drugs. But you can stand around and have a drink and have a chat. You can talk to people. In most nightclubs, certainly over the, the time that I spent most time in nightclubs, you could talk to anybody. And it was very much a free society. You didn't feel self-conscious or you didn't feel overconfident. There was a very happy medium. Maybe old people find that in golf clubs, I don't know. But I've never found it anywhere else. Youth to me means innocence and everything is a new adventure. And I know myself when I'm older, I'd probably be a lot worried about my children or grandchildren and I can understand their worries or anxiousness or apprehensiveness, but they know what it's like to be young. They know what it's like to take risks. That's the way they have to see it, the way they took drink or you know, some people even ran away with each other when they're young or eloped or anything. It's just you never know what's coming next, you never know what's around the corner, and that's just the way life is. I think ecstasy kind of takes something away from dance music uh, scene because it's like throws up road barriers. For one thing, the parents get against the dance music scene, and that closes down clubs, right, and, and limits what clubs can do. So the, the drug thing is holding dance music back. But rave is uh, whatever at the time offends parents the most. You know, it was there before with rock and roll. It was there before with disco. You know, when Elvis was out and when Alice Cooper was out, whatever offends your parents the most, that's what you go for. 